Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad I could be with you in this way this morning. The sermon today is called Keeping Up with the Joneses, Social Status and Desire in First Samuel. Uh, and the subtitle is, I want what I want, but God's parties are weird. This sermon is a meditation on the Old Testament lectionary reading for this week, 1 Samuel 15, 34 to 16, 13. It is also a meditation on the fact that my life isn't what I thought it would be, and God's priorities and way of doing things are profoundly weird. And God is also not a big respecter of social and cultural norms. As we know, a lot of the stories in the Old Testament are cinematic and gripping in their scope. Their cast of characters, political melodrama, extreme violence, ethical murkiness, natural and supernatural wonders, and tense interpersonal conflict. The book of 1 Samuel is no exception, even as it comes on the heels of the truly spectacular drama of the book of Judges. Last week in the lectionary, in 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel clamor to have a king for their nation. For many prior generations, the tribes of Israel had been governed by ad hoc leaders, judges and fighters who arose in times of need and who, in the stories, all answered to God, to the ultimate ruler of their nation. However, it had not escaped the notice of Israel that the surrounding nations all had kings and they wanted to be more like their neighbors. On a visit to the British Museum some years ago, I noticed that 99% of the ancient treasures they had on display were composed primarily of propaganda about how great and awesome the kings of those respective nations were. I found it to be a depressing use of artistic genius that spanned centuries, but it drove home the point that glorifying your king was a great way to promote your national reputation and prop up power plays in your region. It was idolatrous, it was showy, it was pomp and circumstance, and with the same lust that my fellow kids and I had at my thrift-enforcing Mennonite church for Nike sneakers growing up, Israel also wanted to be recognized as a regional power with a name-brand political structure, namely a monarchy. In what is a classic proof text for Christian anarchists, and generally a very interesting piece of sociological observation, the prophet Samuel outlines all of the problems that the nation of Israel can expect to have if they go down the monarchy road in Samuel 8, 11 to 18, which I'll read right here. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel warns the people that they should stick with their idiosyncratic, off-brand system of no king. God is leader and judges and prophets who come and go according to circumstance. But the people refuse to listen. God and Samuel talk it over, as they have done with many national issues for many decades. And God tells Samuel to appoint a king for Israel if that's what the people really want, in spite of the truth of all the hardships that instituting a monarchy will have on them. Samuel anoints Saul to be king, and things are looking up in the National Reputation Department. 
Saul, we learn, is a man of standing and super handsome and also a head taller than anyone else. That's what it says in uh, 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. Human natures remain pretty consistent. People were not any deeper thousands of years ago. Saul looked like a king, and having him walk around looking tall and handsome and being the king was great for the prestige of the organization. Uh, and it is synonymous with the way that people to this day like to make good-looking people their brand ambassadors. But the glamour didn't last forever. Saul goes on to have a mixed military career and doesn't have the same passion for listening to God that Samuel had. Specifically, Saul doesn't carry out God's instructions on how to undertake a genocide of the neighboring Amalekites accurately in 1 Samuel 15. In the story, the fact that God ordered this genocide is one of those narrative moments that makes one question the underpinnings of the whole faith project. Maybe a better sermon divisor than I can address that on a different week. Please use the raise hand function now in Zoom to let the service planners know that you might be interested in explaining this passage to the rest of us. Some of the explanations put forth by Christian internet commentators are truly chilling. I don't want to talk about this, but I also didn't want to gloss over the fact that this is what happens in the story right before the passage where David gets anointed by Samuel. Also, it is interesting to note that Saul didn't go against the genocide instructions out of any distaste for killing women and children. His angle is more that he wants to preserve high-prestige items like the classiest livestock and the king of the nation who he can bring back as a trophy and publicly kill later. So, we can deal with that all another time. Saul, a long story short, Saul falls out of favor and Samuel is instructed by God to go out and anoint a second choice for the new monarchy project. Samuel doesn't know who it is, just that it's a son of a person named Jesse in Bethlehem. Samuel goes through six of the tall, handsome sons of Jesse, but none of them are selected. Samuel is well-versed in listening to God, and instead of forcing one of these sons into the role, asks Jesse if there are any more sons. Jesse says the smallest one, David, is out doing the low-status job of looking after sheep. God gets the memorable line in the story, Do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. David, the littlest son, gets called in and is, incidentally, glowing with health and has a fine appearance and handsome features. I don't know if this is a mixed message. Maybe it's good news for all you good-looking people out there. You know who you are. You can still look cute, but it's also still about the heart we just learned. David has the heart God's looking for, and Samuel, who has commented more than once at this point about the dubious nature of the monarchy project itself, nevertheless anoints him as the next king. This leads to a whole lot more drama than unfolds in the rest of the book and beyond, but let's stop here and consider this for a bit, since it's the reading for the week. I was thinking about how, in its quest for a king, the nation of Israel gets caught up in keeping up with the Joneses, the neighboring nations with their classy, shiny monarchies, and even though they were explicitly warned that it would be their own detriment to do this, they still go for it. Also, even Samuel gets caught up in the confusion of outward markers of success versus looking at the heart when he's visiting Jesse's sons looking for a new king. And also, I, though I was brought up in an environment suspicious of prestige, fall into this. I was thinking about David's job, for example. He's famous for being a shepherd, but looking after sheep was considered a trashy job that people would want to avoid at that time. Take a minute to think of some jobs that you think of as being undesirable. Jobs people denigrate or purposely avoid. 
That's how people thought about being a shepherd. And yet David thought of those jobs as training. The caretaking aspect transferred to taking care of people. David says that he is qualified to engage with Goliath later on because of his experience as a shepherd. He says, I've killed the lion and the bear, preparing him for more. Sometimes when I have a conflict or a challenge at my mostly anonymous jobs or need to sort something out with my family, I think of David saying this, I have killed the lion and the bear. Every challenge is a real and painful task, but every challenge we engage with, even in humble or anonymous circumstances, is also training for larger ones. Our culture values public and outward achievements, but really no learning is wasted and no caring and loving effort is in vain. Mennonites have a tradition of being countercultural weirdos. That might not always be fun, but the freedom potential is high. It is also about faithfulness. We live in a culture that is obsessed with appearances, success, prestige, and fairly stylized signifiers of accomplishment. This can take up a lot of time, money, and mental space, but it's not necessary to prioritize that. In fact, we learn that it's all about the heart. In fact, we can learn how to be free to see ourselves and others in light of the heart and not in terms of markers of success or failure we might have learned to look for. We are free to learn to see people for who they are and not for what kind of job or life or appearance they have, if they went to school or what they're wearing. We are free to learn who we are in relationship to God and others. A friend of mine saw a fancy car drive by once and he started laughing uproariously. That poor guy, he said, Nobody must have told them that you could buy a car that got you reliably from A to B for way cheaper than that, and then you could donate all the extra money to the poor. And then he laughed a whole lot. Not taking the power structure of worldly prestige and status seriously is blasphemy in the best sense of the word. Blasphemy against an idolatrous system that wants to be all-consuming. In a linked sense to this, I've been thinking about my own hunger for prestige, for culturally tangible markers of relevance or accomplishment. It is how we were socialized, it's what is shown on TV. It's what families talk about. Many families, and many of us were socialized this way. Maybe some of us escaped it in some interesting and unusual families. I don't know how well I'm doing in either the heart department or the social prestige department, really, but I have been thinking about a psalm in terms of this, Psalm 78. This psalm is pretty long and is also, like the book of Samuel, pretty full of questionable violence and vengeance stuff. So I'm not sure how strongly I recommend it, but there is a part that I've been thinking about a lot where the psalmist describes how God looked after God's people in the wilderness after they escaped from Egypt. The psalmist describes how God split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas and made water flow down like rivers. God looked after them in completely unlikely and unexpected ways, but the psalm says they still doubted that God could look after them and related to God in terms of either doubt or flattery. I've been struggling to believe that God will provide for me in spite of such a long history of provision and struggle to relate honestly with a pure heart to this very strange and weird and omnipotent triune person. I've also been upset that God hasn't provided some specific prestigious menu items I might be craving when really water in the desert is the most powerful thing. It is difficult to understand what provision means when our understanding of our human needs is so warped by a culture that has such a perverse view of human life and meaning. People do need affirmation, respect, recognition, and a place to belong. This is also water in the desert. We are also more free to provide this for each other when we care less about prestige. And prestige is like a trashy snack food in the desert. 
Maybe interesting, maybe not, but it sure isn't water as abundant as the seas.